You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Turn in your copy of God's Word to John 16, beginning in verse 25. John 16, 25, we come now to the finale in this teaching portion of the Upper Room Discourse. And hasn't it been a privilege over the last several months to be invited to this meal, so to speak? Here, Jesus' last meal with his disciples, and now we, 2,000 years later, spectating on uh, uh, the teaching and the lessons that Jesus has been teaching here. Now, let me just uh, remind you of where we've been. The meal began uh, with Jesus demonstrating and commissioning his disciples into a life of sacrificial service and love uh, for one another, a life that we've been commissioned into as well. And uh, you may even have the opportunity to demonstrate uh, this as you have people into your home this week or to extend hospitality as you share a meal with with, with, with others. In particularly, Jesus uh, taught the disciples there how to serve and love those who have hurt us or even betrayed us. And there may be those around your Thanksgiving table in a few days that have hurt you deeply. And yet you have the opportunity to live as Christ has taught us at this meal. And maybe you're feeling the same unsettling feelings that the disciples were feeling over this meal. And that's why Jesus launches into this dinner discourse with the disciples to prepare them and and us for what to expect in a life of following Jesus. Not just there on Thanksgiving Day, but every day in our lives as believers as we want to honor him. And so these words are as timely today as they were then for the disciples. And as you can imagine, the tension has been rising over the course of the meal, that Jesus is going away and has promised to help the disciples and to help us with the hope of of his return and the help of the Holy Spirit. But there's a question really that hangs out there over the meal as this meal comes to a close. It's, will Jesus come through? Will Jesus do as he said he will do? Can we take Jesus at his word? Well, let's read how the meal ends and discover really how this discourse resolves as Jesus has been teaching us along the way. Hopefully you found John 16. We'll pick it up in verse 25. And again, this is Jesus speaking. And here's what the word of God has to say. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, Now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? 
Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is God's word for God's people. Now we're at this moment that the hour has come that has been building all throughout John's gospel. Remember along the way we've had these signs that uh, his hour had not yet come. And then uh, John 13 really begins with his hour had come. The hour that Jesus would be betrayed and crucified. And, and, and that hour then that the disciples would be scattered from the safety of their small group with Jesus. To take the gospel to the nations. And so in this moment in in human history, at this moment in Jesus' earthly ministry, the disciples now stand on the threshold of the countdown timer nearing zeros for Jesus to go to the cross. And Jesus now really brings them to this decision point of belief. Will you take me at my word when I am gone? And remember, this is the main point of John. Of all the things that he includes in his narrative, the way that he arranges it and what he includes of the things that Jesus wrote, he writes so that we believe. Believe specifically, as he says in chapter 20, verse 31, they are written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And this belief is put to the test through the troubles, through the fear, the hatred, the sorrow, and now the uh, tribulation that he refers to that is coming for them. That's why we can say at the center of this text that the whole thing really resolves. Write this down for it's at the center here that tribulation will only make sense through believing the gospel. Let me say that again for us this morning. Tribulation will only make sense through believing the gospel to this decision point that Jesus has brought them through the difficulties of life. They only make sense when we view them through Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. And our text here, as dinner is coming to a close, seems to be a light bulb moment for the disciples in many ways. And so what is it that has made it all click? The aha moment, well, it's the teaching of Jesus and the help of the Holy Spirit, but it is also, I think, the bringing together of all of Jesus' teaching into one setting. The the concise summary of what he has uh, been teaching all throughout his life now shared in in a moment over a meal. Now, we've taken it over many months, but don't forget that this is a a mealtime discussion, a mealtime discourse and teaching. And so it's like the last chapter in a good book where all the subplots and all the other storylines are now coming to their conclusion, to their resolution in the last chapter. And everything that Jesus has been saying and doing through the last several years comes together now as we see it through the lens of the gospel, not only in what Jesus did, but also accomplished for us at the cross. How is this all so? How does Jesus, how does tribulation then make sense through the gospel? Through what Jesus did at the cross, how does that shed light on our circumstances, particularly the difficult times in our life? 
Well, that's what the text really draws out. That's what Jesus is teaching on here. See, here's what we learn in the first few verses. The gospel makes sense of our tribulation by securing us in God's love. Write that down. It's there on the screen. It's here in your notes. The gospel makes sense of tribulation by securing us in God's love. Now, as he's been teaching a lot along the way, and I love how he comes to in verse 25, and he says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech, but the hour is coming where I will tell you plainly now about the Father. And all of us are like, amen to that, right? So much of what Jesus has said has been like in riddles. And Jesus is like, hey, there's no more riddles. I'm just going to shoot you straight here. The time is running out. There's no, no more time for any of this. But I'm, I'm just going to shoot you straight here in these final, final moments. And, and, and this isn't just what he's been doing over dinner. Much of Jesus' teaching ministry, especially in the latter half, has been through parables. Right? Now, John doesn't record many of them for us. He has a different purpose, bringing us to belief. But the other gospel writers record many of Jesus' teachings that were in, these, in parables or in figures of speech that were to illustrate spiritual principles, but in a veiled way, particularly veiled towards unbelievers. It was to veil spiritual truth from those who had rejected him. And so particularly in Matthew, you have Jesus like doing these miracles, teaching these things, the, the, you know, the great sermon on the mount, but he's rejected in every place that he goes, particularly by the Jewish leaders. And so there's this uh, change then in chapter 13, where Jesus now starts to teach in these parables. And so he tells them these things, hey, I'm teaching, as the disciples ask, I'm teaching these to veil spiritual truth. Now, let's go look at it for a second, because I want to make sure you see this. It's not just something that I'm saying or a conclusion that I'm coming to. It's just Jesus' direct teaching. Go to Matthew 13. Let's just turn to the left. You have John. You'll hit Luke, then Mark, and then Matthew. Matthew chapter 13, and his first parable is a very familiar one to us. It's often called the parable of the sower or the parable of the so soils. It's Jesus' teaching of the gospel, and he uses different soil types to uh, talk about uh, our, the human heart and how receptive we are to the gospel. And so he teaches that, and then go to verse 10, Matthew 13, verse 10. And the disciples asked him this question. The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you has been given... Note that, to you, to the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah, it's Isaiah 6, by the way, is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. I will stop there. And so what is... Jesus elaborating here. He's like, this has always been the case, even in referring to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is that incredible passage where God reveals himself to Isaiah and commissions him. He gives him that incredible vision and then commissions him. He's like, who will I send? And Isaiah's like, I'll go. And God's like, great, I'm going to send you. But you should know something. 
Nobody's going to listen to you. They're going to reject the good news of everything that I say to their ears. They're not going to be able to hear. They're not going to say. They're going to be blind. And so he tells, that's why Jesus then begins to teach in these parables as well, because he's been rejected. The good news has been, 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 been just cast off. And now Jesus is coming to taking them to this moment here. He's like, hey, enough of that. I've been speaking in parables, these, this figurative speech. I've been saying some of these things here. But now as we come back to John 16, he's like, no, I'm just going to tell you plainly. There's going to be a day when that happens. And so what day is Jesus talking about? You see that in verse 26? Here now we're back in John 16, or yeah, 16, into verse 26. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. What day is he referring to? Well, the context, as we've been working through, the context is the coming of the Holy Spirit. That which is recorded in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, from that day forward, everything is different. Everything is different in how the Spirit will now indwell people permanently and, 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 and how He will lead uh, them too. But up until this point, Jesus had alone really had this direct access to the Father, particularly in prayer. They had to go to the temple, make sacrifices, and go through this, uh, the, the mediating blood there. But now when Jesus goes, this is a once-for-all sacrifice, and the Holy Spirit comes and now dwells in believers, and Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, the veil being torn in the temple, then they too and we now also have this direct access to the Father in prayer by grace. That's what Jesus is getting at. Why? Why would we have this incredible access? What does verse 27 say? For the Father himself loves you. Have you lost your awe of the love of God, church? Like, how profound is this? The Father's love for us, His wrath towards our sin, fully satisfied through Jesus' atoning death, on the cross, in our place, so that what? All we now know is his love. For the Father loves you. A love that was unlocked as, you know, the rest of it goes, a love that was unlocked as we believe in Jesus as our Savior and we love him as our Lord, right? That you've loved me, have believed that I came from God, that he was the rescuer sent from God as we believe this like concise, uh, simple uh, gospel proclamation in verse 28, as we believe that Jesus came into the world that the Father sent him, and now he's leaving and will come back. He's going to the Father. That's about as simple of a gospel statement that Christ left heaven's throne, came from the Father, lived in this world, put on human flesh, and then died, leaving the world, going back to the Father, resurrecting and then ascending to him. And at the center of all that is the Father's love for us. So it moved him to send Jesus. 
This is what kept Jesus going through his own tribulation, the tribulation of his life as people rejected him, the tribulation and the beating and the crucifixion that he is just hours away from experiencing. It was love that has sent him to do it. And it is that same love that the Holy Spirit confirms in our own heart over and over, moment by moment, day after day in our life, but especially during times of trouble during times of tribulation, that the Holy Spirit does this confirming work in our hearts. And Paul elaborates on this in Romans chapter 8. You remember that if you've been around here a while? Summer before last, we went through that. And Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. And so let's, let's turn there. Let's go. It's the other direction now. John, to go to your right, Acts Romans chapter 8. I want us to see this here as, the, as, we, as we see the work of the Holy Spirit confirming, securing us the love of the Father. Romans chapter 8. We referenced it last week, how there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God for that, right? But now as you come to chapter 8, let's begin in verse 9. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so here's that great truth that Jesus has been teaching, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Now go down to verse 14. You see the the thread of this, uh, the Spirit's confirmation of the love of God in us. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. See, the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who's leading in us, also is like bearing witness to our spirit. Like, you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. You're his child and an heir, an heir to all his immeasurable riches, an heir to his unconditional love for you, an heir to eternity with him, to the glory that's going to be revealed. But until we get there, it also comes with what? Suffering. Tribulation. He'll explain that more in 18 through 25 in the hope that we have, the expectation that not only we as the people have, but all of creation, the earth itself groaning, waiting for the glory that is to be revealed. And while we wait, go to verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, right? Because what do we pray for? What has Jesus been teaching us in the upper room? Ask whatever you wish in my name and you'll receive it. Ask according to my will. But sometimes in our suffering, and our tribulation, we don't always know what that is. So our God, we want your will to be done. But look at this. But the Spirit himself intercedes, prays for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the what? The will of God. You may not know, I may not know his will, but the Holy Spirit does. Interceding, praying, groaning, giving you the strength that you need to carry on in the love of God. 
And so jump down to verse 34. Who is then to condemn? Well, you, there's no condemnation. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, praise God for that, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. How incredible. Two members of the Trinity, Son and Spirit, interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall, what's the first word on the list? Tribulation. What did Jesus say? Will come tribulation. Can tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. You may have no food, no clothes, and be in attack from every side. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long and are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You may even suffer innocently. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, confident, resolute, convinced, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Could it get any better than that, church? In our moments of tribulation, it is the work of the Holy Spirit confirming, securing us over and over of the love of the Father for us. See, making sense of the tribulation, the things that grieve us and squeeze us, is a work of the Holy Spirit, so that when those thoughts, when those doubts, whether creep in through our own misunderstanding of God or through the attacks of the enemy, those things where it's like, well, God must hate me. God must be out to, to get me, or at least like God has abandoned me. God doesn't know what I'm going through. He's not, he doesn't love me anywhere. No, the Holy Spirit is there to bear witness to our heart. No, you are loved by God. Yes, even in this is in his good, wise, loving hand. You are secure. I have you. Nothing, not even this tribulation, not even this distress could separate you from it. This is what Jesus is bringing the disciples back to there at the, uh, in the upper room. He's doing this eternal work. The Spirit does this eternal work, and it's to help us make sense of tribulation. But what it also does, what the, what, what the gospel does, is it opens our eyes to spiritual truth. Come back to John 16. See, the gospel helps make sense of tribulation and our belief in it by opening our eyes to spiritual truth. Spirit at work, the gospel uh, lens in which we put on, it makes uh, it helps make sense or bring understanding to, uh, to the things that God is doing. Now, you know, he comes to this, he's like, his disciples are like, now like, aha, thank you, finally. Now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech, right? Because he just did, he just explained the gospel. Remember last week, like in verse 16, Jesus is like, a little while, you'll see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. What does that mean, Jesus, right? Like we know now on this side of the cross and, and what Jesus is speaking of, but that's figurative speech. Now he's just said pretty plainly in verses 27 and 28. So they're like, thank you, right? But see, here's the, here, here's, here's the reality. A common biblical metaphor to unbelief is blindness. 
There's other things, dead in our trespasses and enemies of God, other metaphors that the Bible used, but particularly so walking in darkness, uh, blindness. Like the familiar song, Amazing Grace articulates for us, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And I think we're witnessing a moment like this for the disciples in 29 and, and, and 30 here. Not necessarily that they're coming to faith and able to see for the very first time, but they're growing in their understanding of, of who God is, or particularly who uh, Christ is, and things are clicking. The Holy Spirit is opening their eyes to know, to discern spiritual truth, just as Jesus said he would do twice already over dinner. Chapter 14, verse 26, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. And again in 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And the Apostle Paul will explain this further in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 about how spiritual things are discerned by the Spirit of God living in believers. But the natural man or the unbeliever, this is 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 14. You don't have to turn there, but you can just uh, look it up on your own later. But the natural man is unable to discern spiritual things or hidden from him, whether it's spoken plainly or in figures of speech. But it is the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to understand and apply the truth. And specifically for the disciples here, it's not that they're coming to know Christ for the first time, but now two things are made very clear in their minds. Do you know what? Did you see what it is in verse 30? Now we know. Do you see it? What did they come to find? First, what do they now know about Jesus? That he knows all things. They don't need anyone to question him. He doesn't, they've had three years of tests over and over and over. And every single time, Jesus has proven to be who he said he was and to do what he said he could do. Never once has he failed. He knows all things. He is omniscient. And he is sovereign in control of all things. And they now, this is very clear to them as they see how this is coming. They may not know all the details, but they know that Jesus knows all things. And second, look at what it says. And this is why we believe that you came from God. They know that Jesus is the Son of God. The rescuer, the reigning rescuer of the world. He came into the world to save sinners. This is his purpose in all of his activity on the earth, through his earthly ministry, and even now. But the reality is, sometimes, through a hardship, this stuff is unclear to us. When trouble and fear and hatred, sorrow, tribulation, all words that Jesus has used in this meal for us to expect of what following Jesus would look like, when those moments overwhelm us, spiritual truth sometimes is hard to grasp. The gospel is so hard to see. You know, when the flood waves that are uh, coming over us, when they're preventing us from seeing the safety of the shore, it's easy for us to think in those moments, God, how is this part of your plan? How does this advance the gospel? I'm out to sea. I'm drowning. Have you lost control of the world? Have you lost control of my life? It's because in those moments, the waves have turned our glasses upside down and backwards. And so we're viewing God through our circumstances rather than our circumstances through God and his gospel. 
And so the Holy Spirit doesn't just help us interpret the Bible and the truths in it as we read and study it, but he also helps us interpret our circumstances through his gospel, through the sovereign care and what God is doing here in our life. But note this, it doesn't mean that we have all the answers right in the moment when we ask, well, God, why are you doing this? How does this tribulation glorify you? How does this tribulation sanctify me? He doesn't always give us the answers right then and there because sometimes the answers uh, would be too much for us to bear in that moment. He's already alluded to that in last week's passage. This is what he tells the Israelites in the book of Habakkuk. It would be too much for us to understand and bear. But like the disciples who in this moment could not have borne the weight of all the understanding of what Jesus was going to do at the cross and all the spiritual significance of the crucifixion here in that moment, what they did need to know and believe were these two truths. Jesus knows everything and Jesus is the reigning rescuer of the world. And that was sufficient. That is what they needed to walk through and witness the betrayal and the arrest and the cruelty and the crucifixion of Christ. So too for us. When the details in your diagnosis are yet unclear. When the heaviness of tragedy is too much to carry. When the ridicule is just non-stop. When the stress and the distress of life is, is, is weighty. What is sufficient? It's Jesus knows everything. This isn't like some new test that he has never encountered before. And he is your reigning, ruling rescuer. He will lead you through it. He will get you through it. His glory will be on display. You will become more like Christ through it. He is producing something in you and through you and out from you that you may not know all the details. And even if he told you beforehand, you would laugh him off as that would be impossible. And yet what he is doing through all this is helping you to see exactly what you need to see in the moment when it is particularly difficult. It's the truth we need to press on, to carry on. It's the peace that ultimately then settles us, which is how he concludes this whole uh, section, how he concludes the whole teaching portion of his meals, that the gospel helps us make sense of our tribulation by settling us in God's peace. Write that down as point number three, by settling us in God's peace. We come to verse 31. The disciples are like, hey, we know these things. We believe these things. In verse 31, Jesus is like, okay, do you now believe? And he's not being snarky. He's not, you know, just like, all right, about time you got, you know, this all figured out here. No, no. See, they're believing now what he's been revealed to them, and they will continue to mature for the rest of their lives. Okay, you've got this. You now believe. And then he proceeds to give them some things like, here's some need to knows before I go. Right? Here's some things you need to believe before I leave. He leads them with that will give you then this peace. And so he tells you, okay, you believe, well, the hour's coming, indeed it has come. Here's what you need to know. You're going to be scattered. Right? Physically away from those you love, disciples. And not long from here, you will be uh, uh, scattered away from this uh, small group of people, and you might even be scatterbrained. You will be alone in your home without Jesus physically present. But don't worry, Jesus isn't alone. He's like, you will be, but I won't be. The Father will be with me. 
all the way to the point on the cross until the Father isn't. Until the only and final moment in human history where the Father would forsake the Son so that we wouldn't have to be forsaken. Why could we sing the song last week? Not for a moment have you forsaken us. Why can we believe that and know that to be true? It's because Christ bore it for us. But up until that moment, the Father was with him. He will be with him. And because of these things, here you need to know this. You'll have peace. Even though in the world you will, you will have tribulation. There are so many places. We don't even have to do a thorough study. You likely know places prior to this in Jesus' teaching, places after this in our Bible where we're told that affliction, distress, tribulation, suffering, those things that squeeze us, those things that are weighty, uh, uh, await us. Don't expect anything else. If you expect anything else, you you, you will be disappointed. Don't miss this. This is just a normal part of the Christian life. Expect it to be hard. That doesn't mean every moment is. That doesn't mean everything in our life is always weighty and, and grievous. But we can't be caught off guard when it does come, especially in following Christ. And so where's the consolation in this? Where's the comfort? Where's the courage? Where's the encouragement? What makes then the tribulation make sense? Well, it's his final statement. And in the teaching portion of the upper room discourse, before he prays over all that he has said, spoiler alert, chapter 17, as this all comes, Jesus is going to pray for his disciples, and we too included in this, he's going to pray for everything he just told him is going to happen over the last several chapters. All these things expected. All right, now let's pray and ask God's help for it. That's how chapter 17. We'll get there and pray over it and study it in the next three weeks or so. But where's the consolation? But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome so that we can overcome sin, so that we can overcome temptation, so that like we saw in Romans chapter 8, we are super conquerors, more than conquerors. Why? Because he loved us, because he accomplished it and accredited it to our account so that we can walk in peace with God and peace with one another. He has overcome through his death and resurrection. He came and conquered through the unlikely means of his own death. His exaltation came through his rejection, through his death. You may be thinking to yourself, overcome the world? Sometimes it doesn't seem like it, does it? Global suffering rampant everywhere. War is happening. War even now in his promised land. Overcome the world? People hate Christians in every area, every time, all the time for being just simple Christians. But note... When Jesus says this, just the course of his life, is he saying this after he's resurrected? No, he's saying this hours before his arrest, his beatings, and his crucifixion. From all perspectives, this seems actually like a defeat is on the horizon, not a victory. But Jesus knows what is coming. 
He knows the end from the beginning. He who for the joy set before him endured the cross, Hebrews 12 says. And it wasn't a joy that was just some fake joy. It wasn't just, a, you know, in this overcoming the world that is preemptive here. He knows the end. He would endure it because he knew what it would accomplish. It would accomplish our freedom from sin's penalty and power. He knew what lied on the other side, our eternity in God's presence. He knew what it would unleash for us, the coming of the Holy Spirit in our life. See, he knew that it would win for us peace with God. That he himself being the prince of peace, that we would no longer be his enemies at war with him, but now at war against our sin so that we could be at peace with God and in our own self, in our hearts and minds under his sovereign control. So, you know, this is the cure. The gospel is the cure for the trouble and turmoil that often churns up our heart in times of tribulation, where we can say, God, you took care of my biggest eternal problem. I was your enemy, and now I am at peace where our hearts are settled in his peace. You took care of the big, biggest problem that I had, the most eternal problem, separation from you. So now you can take care of even this momentary light affliction. See, whatever affliction, sorrow, hatred, trouble, uh, tribulation, all those words that we're told to expect that maybe you're experiencing now is that opportunity to choose joy and to walk in the peace that Christ won for you and to remind your heart, to remind your mind of these anchoring truths. I am loved by God. He is the Son of God. He knows all things. He has overcome sin in the world. I am at peace with God. And as we lay these down, uh, these anchor things down, when we're, when we're scattered and alone, and scattered in mind, we can meet the hour with peace and courage. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. The only question really then remains is will we believe him? Will we take him at his word? Will we walk by faith through life's battles? That's the question. So let's pray and ask God to help us do that. God in heaven, you've brought us to a, a moment here, a moment to confess our belief in you. And so would you do that work even now in our hearts and minds? Uh, maybe some are coming to uh, you in the first, uh, for the first time. Draw them in. For others of us, we have our own tribulation. We have our own affliction. Maybe you're feeling in moments of unsettling. And so we bring them to you and confess, God, I believe in you. I believe that you will come through. I will take you at your word. We need your help to do that, God. And so take our moments, take a, uh, you know, maybe uh, none come to mind in our own life, but we have friends and family. Maybe just thoughts of Thanksgiving are unsettling for us now. Maybe not. Maybe they come with great joy as we get to uh, spend moments with our family, God. But thank you, God, that uh, you have not 
ultimately left us alone. You've sent your spirit. And so we need your help. Help to, uh, to continue walking secure in your love, settled in your peace, believing what is true. And so do that work now by the help of your Holy Spirit. Today, this afternoon, this week, every day. I pray now in Christ's name.